David Medot, Kent Monroe, Omar Shearer, and Jeff Wandich were young Canadian men who were on vacation in Florida. On the morning of November 4th, 1994, they set out from Marco Island into the Gulf of Mexico in Jeff's boat, the Siesta, for a day of fishing and scuba diving. 48 hours later, Wandich was found stranded on a military light tower, the boat had sunk, and the other three men were never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. I start off this episode with a recommendation. If you are a first-time listener to Unfound, first of all, thank you for finding the program. Your listenership is greatly appreciated, and I hope you keep coming back every week, every Friday, to see what case Unfound is going to cover. But please understand, this is part two of a case we started on the previous episode of Unfound. And it's probably a poor place to start in getting to know both Unfound and this particular case. I would humbly suggest that you go back and start with part one and then come back to this episode or find some of the other episodes that Unfound already has out. There's over 30 of them. Start there and then come back to part one. And once again, I thank you for finding Unfound. For everyone else, this continues our examination into the official story Jeff Wandich told the Coast Guard, the families, and other entities regarding the disappearances of David Medot, Kent Monroe, and Omar Shearer on November 4, 1994, in the Gulf of Mexico. We are going to continue to try to figure out if Jeff Wandich is a reliable narrator or not regarding this incident. And in the last episode, you heard my defense of his account of what happened back in 1994. In this episode, you're going to hear the other side, the prosecution side, as I try to make the case that Jeff's story doesn't quite make sense. And this is going to start with my continued interview with Bill Medot, the father of David Medot. Then after that interview... You'll hear me go through those points that may undermine the story Jeff Wandich told. I will do this from three different angles. Historical precedent, general knowledge regarding boating and scuba diving, some info of which I discovered on my own. Thus, this is info that has never been heard anywhere else over the last 23 years regarding this case. And number three, Jeff Wandich's on-the-record words to the media at that time in 1994. In the end, I'm not going to give you my opinion of what happened. You are the jury. I'm going to leave it up to you. Unfound news. I want to update you on the disappearance of Robin Abrams. We covered that case last November. If you don't know, earlier this month, the FBI and Illinois State Police were digging up a basement in Juliet, Illinois, in the hopes of finding her remains. I had a chance to talk to Jody Walsh, Robin's sister, and she told me that nothing was found. This is an unfortunate development in this case, but I know that Jody and the rest of Robin's family will not stop until everyone associated with Robin's disappearance are put behind bars. It should be known, though, the Will County Sheriff's Office was barred from assisting in this dig, 
you can read into that whatever you'd like. The new season of Disappeared has started. I've seen the list of cases, and there are several that I frankly know nothing about, so I'm looking forward to watching them. However, one of the episodes, and this might be of interest to all of you, concerns the disappearance of Eric Franks, a case we recently covered on Unfound. This will be the first time that we've covered a case on Unfound, and then it gets on Disappeared, whereas we've already covered a couple cases on Unfound that were already on Disappeared in previous years, the disappearance of Suzanne Lau being an example of that. And yes, I'm very curious to see how Disappeared covers the disappearance of Eric Franks, given that case's complexities and many details. Finally, in a few weeks, Unfound will be covering a case where the main suspect in a disappearance is getting out of jail. He's been in there 15 years on charges not related to that disappearance. So that episode will not just be a chance to get the word out if someone knows something about this missing persons case, but it will also let everyone know that a very dangerous man is back out on the streets, a man who has never answered for the murder he probably committed. Where you can find Unfound. You can find the program on Twitter, at Unfound Podcast. You can find the program on Instagram, also at Unfound Podcast. You can find this podcast on Facebook, the Unfound Podcast Discussion Group. It's a private group, kind of like a club. You can join the conversation there. We'll gladly let you inside. You can find Unfound at Podomatic and iTunes. And thank you all for the nice recent reviews. You can email the program unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. And then please mention Unfound at all of the popular true crime locations, including Reddit, Web Sleuths, podcasts we listen to, and all other true crime websites and forums. Bill Medot, father of David Medot, joins us again on Unfound. Bill, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ed, and thanks for having me back. I want to talk to you about this book, Vanished in the Gulf, which is a detailed account of the disappearances of your son David, Kent Monroe, and Omar Shearer. How did that all get started? Well, it was a confluence of objectives, I guess. A couple things happened. While we were in uh, Florida, and this was unfolding, um, the Toronto Sun newspaper sent a reporter down to cover it, and his name was Joe Warmington. Very good, very... uh, uh, sharp guy. And he came down and he was issuing reports from here and, and looking at all the information uh, that came up. And at, at, and after a few weeks or uh, several weeks of doing this, uh, it struck to him that he felt he wanted to write a book about this because it was a mystery. And there might be a way to help us um, get some information or get some answers or whatever. Um, at the same time, I was back in uh, Toronto, in Mississauga, which is next to Toronto, where we live. And, of course, I was still working on this. There was, we still didn't have our boys back. We didn't know where they were. We are trying to do what we could. And I was doing things like hiring private investigators, investigating satellite data, uh, talking to psychics, you name it. I was doing it. 
to try and get some information. And one of the things I was trying to do was kind of the thing we're doing now. I wanted to get some exposure on the media, maybe on TV, et cetera, like Million Dollar Mysteries or whatever. And, of course, there's a million people trying to get on these shows, and I felt that what I needed was some legitimacy. In other words, I had to write a brief with enough good facts in it. And I'm thinking to myself, because I'm back working, when am I going to time to write a 50-page brief? And then all of a sudden, Joe's on the picture asking for my help in doing a book. And I'm thinking, hey, this book may just solve my problem. So anyways, it, it did. And Joe and I became partners on the book. And the book was created. And therefore, thereafter, it's the vehicle that I've used to, to talk to people about this. And what was the premise of the book? I know it was to get word out about this disappearance, but was it also to put the facts in a place where everybody can access them so some scrutiny could be given to Jeff Wandich's story? Well, well, yeah, that was exactly it. Because, you know, a lot of theories, a lot of comments came up, a lot of theories people had, you should do this, you should do that, maybe this, maybe that, etc. So this was a way of putting it all into one place because there's a lot of smart people out there. People see things different ways, you know, and maybe being presented with the same facts, someone will see a different twist, whatever. So there's that. They may come up with an idea. Number two, Someone might say, uh, discover that they know something. Hey, I found a BCD around that time somewhere, you know, or whatever, or, you know, that sort of thing. So that way, and my own purposes, like, you know, like to publicize this. So, so that's, that's how all the objectives we had. How long did it take to put this book together? And during the writing of it, were there any revelations that you two came upon Sometimes that happens when you put words to paper. And how did you and Joe work together? Well, uh, it was really great because we were both, you know, back in Toronto and we would meet and discuss things. And, you know, I said to Joe, hey, let's try very hard to present the facts, prevent the truth as we know it, and let other people uh, who look at it decide what they're going to take away from it. Um, we're not accusing, we're not uh, favoring one theory over another. It's just a mystery. So let's do that. And I think it took us, oh gosh, uh, four or five months. Uh, You know, there's a lot to producing a book. You know, you got to write it. Then you got to have typeset a certain way. Then you got to get a publisher and then this and that, then a distributor. (laughs) I learned a lot about the book business, let me tell you good way to lose money but but nonetheless yeah we got it done in in you know four or five months uh, out the door and so that was a great relief did joe warrington decide to do this book were his motivations much like yours were that there seemed to be something that didn't add up in all of this well, his, he had his suspicions, you might say, clearer, faster than, than I had, you know, with sort of long, similar lines of questions and, and issues and things to do. Uh, but yeah, he was very fast off the mark on that and, and really wanted to push ahead. So what were some of the sources used for this book? Obviously, the reporting that Joe, he himself did, the words of Jeff Wandich, statements from the Coast Guard. Uh, what else was put into this book? Yeah. Well, you see, uh, Joe had interviewed a lot of people 
um, like the mechanic at the marina that, that fixed the boat and, and the salvager, et cetera. So he had interviews with these type of people. Um, I had talked with the Coast Guard. I had talked with different private investigators I had who were uh, searching out different things. So I had a lot of stuff there. Plus, you know, I was talking, you know, I knew a lot about the families at this point because I've been, I'd lived with them for three, four, five, six weeks. And so, yeah, we were able to sort of combine it that way. And were you pleased with the final product? You were gracious enough to send me a copy. I read it. I enjoyed it. I found it to be very informative. It helped me a lot in understanding what happened back in November 4th of 1994. But also, if you were to write that book again now, would it be different? I don't know that we'd be different because I think, and I've reviewed it recently, I think um, Joe did a good job uh, of, you know, based on the objectives that we had. And I don't know there's that much more you can do because what we really need is more facts, right? That's what we really need, uh, some new fact, because we, we're just machining, you know, facts or guesses that we have today, and that hasn't moved us along. I mean, since then, uh, you know, if I want to add something to the book, I, I've had sometimes anonymous notes from people about different things. Look here, look there, you know, check out this, check out that. But it's pretty tough when you can't get back to those people, right? And uh, especially when, you know, when people take care to uh, not leave fingerprints on their, on their envelope or, and not sign their name, et cetera. So, you know, there's a few things like that. A few psychics have uh, been involved with, which was, you know, an interesting experience uh, of what they said, you know, uh, things like that. And, and different other groups that, you know, like missionaries that I got in contact with because, there was, uh, you know, some thought that, hey, maybe these kids wind up in Central America. Or, or, you know, so, I mean, how do you find out what's going on there? Although his name came up several times in part one, we have not talked about him alone. What can you tell the listeners about Jeff Wondich? What did you know about him back then? Well, you know, I... Uh, let me go back to the time. At the time, of course, I knew nothing about Jeff Wandich other than he, he belonged to this Wandich family uh, that, that David was going to see. Um, and uh, I know him as the son of a, of a, a ma- very wealthy man who at that time was a real estate developer. And that's, uh, they had this place, nice place in Marco. And, um, he worked for his father. He worked uh, looking after, I think, maintenance in some of the apartment buildings, et cetera. And that's really basically all I know about the guy. He seemed to spend a lot of time in Florida. I think there there had been times he's actually lived and worked in Florida. So I'm not sure exactly you know, how that working relationship worked out. Uh, I do know that he apparently was a master diver uh, or you know, had all his driving to credentials. He's had that boat, the siesta, for a long time. Apparently he was in very good shape and he took good care of it from what I could determine. So really that's the, the sum of it. Yeah. And to reiterate something from part one, Jeff Wandich is the lone survivor in this incident that caused the disappearance of David Medot, Kent Monroe, and Omar Shearer. Right. 
and everything that was detailed in part one of this program comes from the recollection of Jeff Wandich, what he remembered about going out there on November 4th and the next 48 hours. But frankly, the reason you and I are talking is because you still have some suspicions and concerns about what happened back then, almost 23 years ago, what happened on November 4th. Let's talk about some of those suspicions that you have. Well, let's let's look at the total picture. The, the big mystery is why did we not find anything, any trace, given, and we assume uh, as true, we take as true, these guys had these PCDs on, they're on top of the water, we know that we know where they started. We know the current plan. Uh, why didn't we find them? And there's a bunch of theories. And so let me rule out one. Well, one quick one is, oh, some spacemen came and took the kid. So let me get rid of that. But then we'll have people say, well, hey, um, sharks ate these kids. That's why you didn't find them. So, again, this is a path you go down. You start calling experts in sharks and experts in this area in sharks and say, is this likely, would a shark eat a person, eat three people? Is it, could that happen? And, and then the answer becomes, well, that's not likely. A, a shark around here may bite somebody. It may bite a limb, but they won't consume the, the BCD and the whole body and all three bodies and, and there'll be debris, right? So that's back to, hey, we didn't find any debris. So then you say another thing is, well, Suppose these guys are floating along and it's night and they float into something else, like some guy's doing a drug deal. And these guys say, hey, uh, there's some witnesses here. What do we do with them? Pull them in the boat? Uh, no, what do they do? Take them somewhere. This is the Central America, Mexico thing. Take them there, kill them, bury them. You know, could that have happened? That's why they're, you didn't find anything because they're not there anymore. So that's a possibility. And, and to that end, you know, I spent a lot of time and effort trying to get to uh, different bodies like the NSA, CIA, whatever, to find satellite data to see if we could see boats that went through that area at that time or whatever. And anyways, uh, we came out dry. So whether there was information or not, I don't know. But we, we did put a lot of pressure on people, even got some uh, diplomats in Canada to go a formal route and request satellite stuff. So. That one is still kind of open. So then the other theory is, well, we didn't find them because they were never there. So something happened somewhere else. Well, now this is another thing, and many people have brought this up. Of course, that that gives Jeff you know, a problem because that says either he doesn't remember something, like maybe he's got PTSD or something like that, or uh, he doesn't want to say something. So people have suggested that. And is that viable or not? Well, I don't know. Uh, that's why I want facts on the table and other people to look at it because I'm very close to it. And I don't want to be in a position of I'm going to grasp for a straw or look for a, uh, a culprit, if you will, just to satisfy myself. You know, I, I, what I really want is the truth. Okay. So if you go down each one of those paths, you have, there's questions you ask. And as you go down the Jeff path, um, people have asked questions about, you know, the story that he's related. So, The first interesting point you ever made with me had to do with the boat being on 
the surface of the water right above the Baja California while David and Jeff were scuba diving on the bottom. What can you tell the listeners about that? Yeah, like one thing that, that someone had mentioned was that um, we hired, by the way, I hired a, an ex-FBI guy, my name is Joe Creeling, a wonderful man, uh, to go out over that site and, and dive it a couple of times, a few weeks later after this. And then he went down there and they found uh, a toolbox and fishing rods from uh, Jeff's boat right down there on top of the boat. And so someone said to me, well, didn't these guys see all this stuff falling down off the boat? And I said, I don't know. I asked the question and the answer was no, we didn't see it. But that, that was something that struck somebody as being, hey, wouldn't they have seen these items from, you know, falling down through the water? So that was that one. Yes, that struck me strange back when you told me that back in January, and it strikes me as strange now. What can you tell the listeners about the flares on the boat? Well, you know, the, the way one of the ways out of this or to get help would be to send a flare up if you could. And there was two flare uh, packages, if you will, or kits on the boat. And they were in the console of this boat. So if you can picture, you have this boat 22 feet long, right in the very center of the boat is where the steering wheel is, where the driver stands. So I guess that's sort of eight or 10 feet from the point of the bow. And there's a console underneath that where the, where the flares are. So now when the boat is uh, submerged in water with only three feet of it sticking up, uh, the, the chances are the flares are still there. So, um, when I asked about getting the flares, uh, I was told that my son, David, uh, uh, was told, go down and see if there are any flares there. Well, he, he went down, came back, said, I didn't find any. But uh, it seemed a little strange that maybe, uh, you know, the guy who owned the boat, who knew the boat, who knew every nook and cranny on the boat, wouldn't go down and try and, you know, find his stuff. I mean, we have had other tools and things you know, on this boat that it, he knew where they were. No one else did, right? But anyways, uh, it was one attempt to to look for flares, and that was given up after that when you didn't find it. If the listeners will remember back to part one, you remember that Jeff asked or ordered David to go back into the boat underneath the water and release the bait fish, fearing that the small fish would bring bigger fish. And then... David was expected to go back down again to find the flares. Well, when the boat was finally brought back to the service by the salvager, the flares were found exactly in the place where they were supposed to be, weren't they? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that was, you know, disappointing to know that uh, in, in that circumstance. Also, for what it's worth, in front of the center console, apparently there, so this would be about, six feet down, there was a cooler. Cooler had a, a case of beer in there. So it just seems a little strange that someone wouldn't said, hey, let's go down and get a few beers. We can't drink seawater, right? But let's put a beer in the pocket of our BCDs, and if we need it, you know, drink a beer. So these kind of things, uh, uh, you know, people have asked questions. There's 
people may be smarter than me saying, well, why didn't they do that? And I said, I don't know. It just seems logical. In going on this trip, Jeff portrayed himself as an experienced boater and diver to your son, David, to Kent, and to Omar. But there are some things that show that maybe Jeff wasn't as experienced as he portrayed himself to be. What can you say about that? Well, again, someone pointed out to me saying, well, don't. Normally, when people dive, especially if you're way out in the water doing a deep dive, it's apparently, a, I don't know if it's a law, but it's certainly a standard rule that you always have somebody in the boat. So divers go off the boat, but there's always somebody on the top up there, you know, uh, and this didn't happen here. They all went off the boat. So not only did they all go off the boat, but at least two of the guys were kind of like new divers, if you know what I mean, like really not proven at that depth. So that seemed to be kind of a risk, you know, that, uh, that one would take and seemed very, very strange. And, and the other thing that that's, it's concerning is from all I could see the boat was in good repair. I mean, they had this issue with the motor or whatever it was overheating, but of course the motors are off at this point and apparently it was fixed. Apparently they had been fishing for, for an hour and they, the boat didn't sink. Okay. And then they go down, and, and I know Jeff has told me that he could see the bilge pumps pumping water out of the boat. So everything seems to be okay, and then two of these guys are off the boat for probably no more than five to seven minutes, and the boat's suddenly sinking. Like, how does, that doesn't make sense. For the record, and even though the boat was salvaged, brought back to the surface, we still don't know why the boat sank. Exactly. So these these are kind of nagging little questions. You, you know, if you had an answer to, um, yeah, you'd feel better or maybe it would alleviate it somewhere. So, and, you know, these are the types of things people are, are bringing up, uh, brought up to me. And, you know, I, I think Joe pointed them out in, in the book. And, and, like, I can't prove them or disprove them or say they're relevant or not. And I know that Jeff has felt a lot of heat on this and has been very concerned uh, you know, about how he's been portrayed, but I guess we just don't know the answer. The listeners should know that a writer came down to the Gulf of Mexico, went out into the Gulf of Mexico, went out to the area of the Baja, California, on a boat, did some experimentation, and his conclusion was that the boat sank because it was overloaded, meaning when Kent and Omar got back onto the boat on the stern... The engines were too big for the boat. The two engines were too heavy for the boat in the first place. And with two men being on the back of the boat, that's what brought the stern back into the water, thus flooding it. What can you say about that? Yeah, he, he said that. And, and in other words, he could rationalize, you know, all this thing happening. And, you know, and, and a few other people have. But there's been a lot of other people who have rationalized it the other way. So the thing is, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, it's possible, I guess. Mm. Okay. But but when you add it all up, uh, you know, say, yeah, I can rationalize that you could have these heavy uh, motors on the boat. I can rationalize that uh, maybe some water comes in. But how come it all comes in to sink the boat in a five or seven minutes? And then on top of that, 
how come they get sunk and yet we got these guys with BCDs eye on them and we never find a piece of them or any of them, but we find all kinds of other debris for the boat. You know, when you add all these things up, you know, you've got uh, probabilities times probabilities times probabilities. Seems to me it gets pretty minuscule sometimes. While we're at it, what happened to the siesta? Did the Wandiches get it back? Was it sold? Do you remember what happened to it? Do you even know? I I don't know. I don't think Jeff got it back because I think what happened was when the guy, uh, Salvager, took the boat, he wanted to uh, quite a big fee from the Wantages to, to get the boat back and also a big fee to re- repair and clean the motors. And I don't know what happened after that. I, I heard that, that they walked away, but I'm not sure. Listeners should know that I live in a boating community, uh, which is Madeira Beach in Florida. My landlords have taken part in fishing contests in their own boat that's very similar to the Siesta, gone far out into the Gulf of Mexico, and I've had a chance to talk to them uh, about this story. In fact, one of my landlords, Red, vanished in the Gulf. We discovered some things about the anchor. Uh, We discovered some things about the anchor line. Let's talk a little bit about that, Bill. Starting with, are we sure the anchor was attached to the bow of the siesta? Yes, uh, you know that's that's what I was told, and I believe that's what the uh, you know the people said after it was salvaged. Yeah, there was a uh, uh, it was anchored to the bow, and you see, you might recall in the previous um, session. I'd mentioned to you that apparently if a boat is on the bottom of the water out in international waters and it's not anchored, anyone can salvage it. So when the salvager brought the boat up, the anchor line, there was no anchor at the end of the anchor line, right? Or the anchor line was frayed, as they said. So, but it was tied to the front of the bow. Yeah, I mean, if it had been to the back, to the stern, that would be the first thing they said, aha, that's it. You know, you, you could now see that it would sink if it was anchored from the stern. Something that I discovered, and I found this out from a couple different sources put together, one both from my landlord, who once again has been a boat owner for 30 years on the Gulf of Mexico, and from a couple boating forums online, is that the Siesta only had 300 feet of anchor rope. Well, the ratio that a boater's supposed to have going out into deep water is four to one. So the siesta should have had at least 400 feet of rope to anchor in 100 feet of water. And in fact, to be safe, you're supposed to be six to one. So the siesta should have had 600 feet of rope attached to the anchor, not 300. And that may have factored into its sinking, possibly. You were a little surprised to find that out, weren't you, Bill? You didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, not being a boater, I, I had no idea. So it's interesting rule and note, I guess, goes by depth, six to one. I didn't know that, no. What was Jeff's attitude toward you, the families, and the media after this all happened? Well, you know, I guess it's easy when you're an armchair quarterback like I am, and, and I want to be fair to everybody. Um so Jeff had this this uh, situation, this event, uh, this trauma, if you will. So I have no idea what it's like to go through what he what he says happened, and whether you have 
PTSD or something else. But certainly, uh, after he had this and then he was sort of recovering, then a lot of people came asking these types of questions. And Jeff, why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Jeff, did, did you abandon your friends, etc.? And and this concerned him a lot. He he was really concerned, and and, and so was his family. Um, uh, it's, you know, I can understand that. It's not true. You know, it's it's not a good thing to say. But anyways, what I'm trying to say is this concerned him, and he, he I think, to the point where he became very um, concise or, you know, just sort of wanted to get away from it all, et cetera. And, and therefore... Uh, after that, when I talked to him, there was this cloud hanging over, you know, I, I met with him, tried to meet with him a couple of times to get some more facts, but I always felt like there was this cloud hanging over Like he thought maybe I was trying to nail him or catch him up or something like that. So the sessions weren't as, as good as I had hoped. In part one, I had asked you if Jeff took part in the search that took place after he was discovered. You had talked to a boat captain on one of the ships that Jeff had been on during the search. What did that captain have to say? In fact, he came and found you. Yeah, he, he came and said, you know, I don't know if this bothers me. I don't know if it's important. He said, but, you know, I had Jeff out on, on my boat with me, and I didn't feel he was spending a lot of time looking. And halfway through the tour, he decided to go home. So he said, you know, uh, that just bothered me for, uh, you know, a person who's lost three friends. So, I mean, I could look at it the other side and say, yeah, it, you know, it would bother me too. But on the other hand, I have no idea what condition the guy was in. Like this is three, four days after emotions all over the place, et cetera. So all I'm saying is, you know, somebody else said that to me. So well, I, I relate that to you. At one point in part one, while you were describing what happened on November 4th, 1994, and of course you're just using the story that Jeff Wanditch told after he was discovered, you had made it sound like he had changed his story. He told one story to one person regarding a small part of that, the overall narrative, and then later he changed part of that story to something else. Over the years, has his story changed? Um, Not that I'm aware, although I have not. Uh, you know, heard of him retelling or, you know, again, being, you know, re-going re through this with somebody else again. Um, uh, you know, so I can't say that, that it's changed. I mean, you can see there was not a copious amount of detail, you know, to begin with. And, and nothing has changed from what I can see. Going back to that time after Jeff was rescued because I know you haven't talked to him recently. Did he ever convey to you what the topic of conversation was while the four of them were in that water after the boat sank? Yeah, you know, uh, yes, he did. There were some very uh, brief comments. Uh, I said, what do you guys talk about? And he said, oh, well, we talked about, you know, how this would be something to tell our kids and how we were going to be friends forever, et cetera. And, uh, I f was looking for something. Uh, I was expecting to hear, you know, uh, messages from each one, like, you know, because they're all probably thinking, hey, I might not make this. So, you know, tell my mom I love her kind of a thing. Or, you know, and, and I didn't hear 
any of that. So uh, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe they were scared and he didn't want to relate that to me or, or what. I just thought it strange that I really didn't get too much of a personal comments out of, out of this thing for guys that were sort of in the water for four hours together. Have you kept in contact with Joe Warrington since he wrote this book? Do you still talk to him to this day? No, I, I mean, I talk to Joe every now and then, but we really, it's more a friendship as opposed to talking about the case, you know, uh, sort of a thing. And does he still keep tabs on this case? Does he have any intentions of going back to it? Or do you think that it's more likely that he has moved on? I, I think he's moved on. I think he has a, a real um, interest, if you will, or soft spot for this story. But but he needs something to some fact to, to move. Bill, what do you think happened to David, Kent, and Omar? Well, you know... It's tough to point it down, and I certainly don't want to bias your audience. I, I just keep coming back to saying, these guys disappeared. It seems very, very strange. How could they disappear? Okay? There's something that we don't know. And, and I'd like to get a clue. Uh, one direction or another. Uh, so, so we would know something, you know, it's, it's useless for me to speculate because I don't have facts mm -hmm. to say, yes, I think this happened or that happened. Then let me put it this way. Given the story that Jeff Wandich told you back in 1994, you fully expected for your son, David, for Ken and Omar to be found alive. Absolutely. G given the circumstances and the inputs I was getting from various people. You know, it was certainly very positive for the first little while. How has this affected you and your family? Well, it's had a very profound effect. Uh, you know, we're close-knit family. Uh, Dave was a key member. Um, you know, his brothers looked up to him. Uh, my wife, you know, she loves all her kids, but she loved Dave as well and uh it's been an adjustment i mean it never leaves you i mean you have to go on and we're very fortunate that we've had good friends and relatives to support us and we have to move on for the sake of others but yeah it's a life-changing event and i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy and how many other children do you have bill i have two other two other boys uh, matthew and danny and was david the oldest David was the oldest, yes. And how do you think this has affected your two other sons? Uh, well, I guess that would be up to them to say, but I know Danny has always been a, a sort of a man of a few words, but I think he leaned on Dave quite a bit. And, and I know for about a year after uh, Dave was missing, Danny was just sort of off in another world. He, he left home for a while, et cetera. And the good news is now he's, married, has children, doing very well, working for TD Ameritrade. And uh, Matt is, uh, was really a buddy of Dave's, and much so that, you know, Dave would take him out to his university for a weekend with him, you know, when Matt was still in high school. And uh, he lost a good friend. He lost a real good friend. Yeah, So, yeah, we've all 
sort of it's another way it's brought us all closer together i guess do you keep in contact with anybody in kent monroe or omar shears family not really i occasionally see uh omar's mother and and his sister you know uh once every year or so you know around no, we, we, we don't sort of get together or talk about this thing. Uh, Monroe's, uh, I believe, uh, may have passed away. So, yeah. So you are the one who is the advocate, not just for your son, but for Kent and Omar as well. Uh, in a sense, you're representing all of the families, I guess. I, I only represent them in a sense of, you know, they're part of this story. You know, they, they who knows what they want to do, whether they want to make a comment or not or mm. give it up. I, I just know it's always with me. Obviously, there's the book Vanished in the Gulf by Joe Warrington, which can be found on Amazon.com. But where can people find you online, your website, your email, any other information you want to give out? Yeah, the, the website is uh, www.vanish.org, um, which has got a lot of articles and stuff on there. And and if anyone wanted to contact me, uh, you know, they, they can just Google me. Don't don't go to the address that's in the uh, the website. Uh, it's not working. But they can. I'm wmadot at hotmail dot com. So I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. What I'm hoping, Bill is that there are experienced boaters and scuba divers in this audience that can contact you and offer their opinion about this disappearance. As everybody knows, I live right on the Gulf. I know about a lot of disappearances that have happened in these waters. This is a unique one, very unique, and I'm hoping there are people with experience that can offer some new insight into it. Okay, well, thank you. Bill, thank you for being on Unfound, and I hope we can keep in touch with each other. Okay, I look forward to that, Ed. Thank you. And that was my interview with Bill Madot. Like all of my guests, I've gotten to know Bill Madot really well. And I will tell you that I talked to him on the phone more than any other guest before the guest appeared on this program. I think that I talked to Bill seven or eight times before we did these interviews. What I find interesting about Bill is that he is not angry. You've heard people come on to this program and they are angry, and I want you to know they have every right to be. I'm not criticizing that. The people who have appeared on Unfound who are angry at suspects, angry at the police, angry at other officials, angry at other family members. They have every right to be that way, and I understand all of it. I would not call Bill Madot an angry man. He's obviously very emotional. I think he's just frustrated. I think he's perplexed. I think he's puzzled. But Bill does have his suspicions. You heard the interview. There's no denying it. And I don't think it's comfortable for him to question Jeff Wantage's story, but Bill can't deny what he believes to be true. I think he wants to believe the official story that Jeff has told all these years, but Bill can't because he sees too many holes in it. And so now it's my job to show you the holes in Jeff Wantage's story. Yes, you heard some of them in the interview, but those only scratched the surface. 
We're going to go much deeper in a few moments. But for the record, you should know I am not an expert on boating or scuba diving. All I know is what I've read in the last few months and what other people who know a lot about the golf and boating and scuba diving, what they have told me. I'm using that information, along with what I think I know about disappearances in general, to tear apart Jeff Wantich's tale about what happened on November 4th, 1994. It'll be up to you, the jury, to determine whether I successfully did that or not. And one more note regarding the interview that I conducted with Bill. We mentioned an investigation that took part out in the Gulf where a writer came down and tried to recreate the circumstances of the sinking of the siesta. He determined that the back of the boat was overloaded. I'm going to get into that also in a few minutes. Before the interview, I told you that I was going to attack Jeff's story from three different angles. Historical precedent, information about boating and scuba diving in general, and his own statements made to the media back in 1994. I'm going to start with history first. If you start looking at incidents where people were on a boat that sunk, you discover that the odds of people surviving are higher than you think. I'm going to give you the best-known example, going back to World War II, and then a more recent example. Have you ever heard of the USS Indianapolis? It was a heavy cruiser that was sunk by a Japanese submarine very close to the end of World War II, virtually within days of the end of World War II. The Indianapolis had just completed a very secret mission. It had delivered parts of the atomic bomb Little Boy to American forces in the islands off of Japan. And of course, Little Boy ended up being dropped on Hiroshima. Well, the mission was so secret that nobody exactly knew where the Indianapolis was, even when it was coming back from completing its mission. Well, it was sunk very quickly. 900 men went into the water alive, most without life jackets. Very few lifeboats were saved from the sinking. And those men stayed in the water for four days before it was figured out that the ship was missing. And then the men were discovered in the Pacific Ocean. 300 men out of the 900 survived. The other 600 died from either shark attacks, dehydration, other diseases, injuries sustained from either going into the water or being injured when the torpedo attack happened. So here was a group of men out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean who survived in the water for four days days. And if this story sounds familiar to you, if you've ever seen the movie Jaws, Quint, you remember him played by Robert Shaw, the guy who they hired to go out and kill Jaws? The character's backstory was that Quint was on the Indianapolis in 1945 when it was sunk. And that's what began Quint's fascination with sharks because so many of his friends had been killed by them when they went into the water after the Indianapolis sank. So keep that in mind. Four days in the Pacific Ocean, with sharks around, dehydration, and still 300 men survived. Now a more recent example. Does the name Harrison O'Keen 
mean anything to you. O-K-E-N-E. He was in a ship that sank off the coast of Nigeria. He survived for three days in an air pocket a hundred feet underwater. And in fact, the way he was discovered is a scuba diver found him. The scuba diver was down there checking out the ship that had sunk, looking for bodies. Never expected to find a living person, but there was Harrison in an air pocket. And there is a video, actually, that you can find on YouTube the moment that the diver finds Harrison there. I think these two examples give perfectly good reasons why Omar, Kent, and David should have been found. These three young men, everybody knew where they were. And in fact, the Coast Guard was out looking for them just hours after they were supposed to be back on shore. Furthermore, they were in the Gulf of Mexico, which is surely calmer waters than the Pacific Ocean is. They didn't have to contend with sharks. You know how I know that? I know that because if sharks were truly around the Baja, California, that wreck, then there wouldn't be so many people going there to dive that wreck. They'd be afraid of getting attacked. Sharks are not a huge phenomenon in the Gulf of Mexico. And I think we can say pretty assuredly, unless something got really, really weird, that David, Omar, and Kent were not stuck in an air pocket 100 feet underwater. So given all of this, it seems that the three men should have been found if we are to believe Jeff Wandich. But they weren't. The next angle I want to use to attack Jeff Wandich's story is from the standpoint of boating and scuba diving general knowledge. I preface this section with this fact. It was Jeff Wandich who portrayed himself as being knowledgeable and an expert in boating and scuba diving. That's what he told his three friends, David, Kent, and Omar. That's what he told the families. That's what he told friends. Of course, he had the boat. He had some equipment. He portrayed himself as being the expert. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this particular section. Number one fact, and this is part of Jeff Wandich's own story. We talked about this, Bill and I, in part one, and then we talked about it in this episode. All four of the divers went into the water together. That is something that Jeff has said happened over and over again, meaning he left no one on the boat. But nowhere was a diver down flag found. You know what a diver down flag is? If you're a fan of Van Halen, you of course know, because they have an album named that. But it's a red flag with a white diagonal stripe on it. That is a flag you're supposed to use if you are diving, if you're diving alone, let's say, you leave your boat, you're supposed to fly that flag on the boat to let other boaters know that someone is underneath the water. A flag was never found on the wreck, a flag was never found on the boat, and Jeff has never mentioned anything about a diver down flag. A corollary to that, as Bill talked about, you generally should leave at least one person on the boat even if you have a diver down flag, it's 
rarely a good idea to leave a boat unattended. But that's exactly what these four did. I excuse the other three guys, Omar, David, and Kent, because they were newbies to scuba diving. It was Jeff himself who should have known better. He didn't do that. Fact number two, and this once again comes from the story of Jeff Wandich. He admitted that the siesta only had 300 feet of anchor rope. As we touched upon in the interview, the siesta should have had at least at minimum 400 feet, given that they were in 100 feet of water. The ratio at minimum is supposed to be 4 to 1. I discovered this just by accident going to some boating forums online. I then went to my landlords, and you should know, my landlords have lived in the Madeira Beach area for decades. They are experienced boaters. They've been miles and miles out into the Gulf all over the place with their boat, their boat, which is very similar to the Siesta. They said when they go out, their anchor has 600 feet of rope attached to it for 100 feet of water. So they believe in a ratio of 6 to 1. So when they read in the story, and my landlord, my one landlord at least, read the book, they were both stunned to see that the siesta's anchor was only attached to half that. I can't help but wonder that that shorter length of rope could have contributed some way to a poor anchoring at the Baja California site. I wonder. Fact number three, I discovered on a scuba diving forum Regarding the Baja California specifically, that recreational boaters are not supposed to anchor at the Baja California site. I'm going to say that again. You are not supposed to drop your anchor at the Baja California site. I found entries in scuba diving forums going the whole way back to 2003. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any older than that insisting that you are not supposed to do that. And I know you're all wondering, well, then how is a boat supposed to stay over the wreck? The boat would just drift away. Well, at some point, and I've not been able to find out when this was, there is actually a rope attached to the wreck, the Baja California. And at the end of that rope is a keg, yes, what you get beer in. It's full of air. The keg is attached to the rope. The keg, of course, because it's full of air, it wants to float, but the rope is only about 85 feet long. So the, the keg is suspended in mid-water, I guess you'd say, 15 feet below the surface. What boaters are supposed to do is when they get to the Baja California is they are supposed to go into the water and tie up to that rope that is attached to that keg. Why? So nobody gets their anchors hung up on the wreck. Not been able to find out when this started to happen. Who came up with this idea? I think it's a brilliant idea. I don't know if it was pre-94. I don't know if it was post-94. But you should know, divers have been going to the Baja California wreck for decades, well before 1994. It's a very popular wreck site. Why? Because it's only in 100 feet of water, and the ship itself is in fairly good condition. It's a fairly interesting dive. It's very popular. I'm going to guess 
that that keg attached to that rope was set up before 1994. I'm sure at some point between 1945 or 44, when the Baja California was sunk by a German submarine in 1994, somebody figured out, we don't think it's a good idea all these pleasure boaters dropping their anchors here to dive this wreck. So if he was the expert on the Baja California, then why when they got out there did he drop the anchor? Why didn't they tie up? Speaking of the anchor, and if I'm reading... Jeff Wantage's story correctly, and I actually had to get some clarification from this by emailing Bill back after we had already done the interview. If the story is correct in that Jeff cut the rope that David was secured to, and that was the rope that was connected to the anchor on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico near the wreck of the Baja, California, I believe the anchor of the siesta is still down there over 22 years later. I'm sure the salvagers did not bring it up when they brought the boat up because the anchor was no longer connected to the boat and they wouldn't go looking for it. It's not that valuable. It's probably still down there. I'd like to see that anchor and I'd like to see if the rope, if it was a high quality, might still be okay. I'd like to see that rope as well. Just a thought. My fourth point regarding general boating and scuba diving practices, I discovered also on a scuba forum that the Baja California to this day in 2017 is a wreck that is very hard to find. I found out that there is a lot of, I don't know if it's disinformation, but there are a lot of different coordinates as to where the Baja California is, and and we know this to be true even going back to 1994, that the Coast Guard sounded like it was confused when it originally went out into the Gulf looking for the four men, that they went to the wrong location. Well, to this day, that still continues, and as you know, GPS devices and GPS technology has come light years since the 1990s, since the early 1990s, specifically since 1994. And I'm left wondering, how is it that Jeff made all of these other mistakes? In my, At least they look like mistakes to me, some of the points I've already made. But he was able to find the Baja California in a time where GPS was not as accurate, the devices were harder to use, and even now people are confused by where they are supposed to go to find that wreck. It's very interesting to me. I don't know what it means, but it is interesting. My fifth point concerns the oxygen tanks. If you will remember, Bill stated that David and Jeff were underwater for about 15 minutes. And if you don't know, the deeper you go into the water, the more oxygen you use, meaning... At 50 feet, you use a certain amount of oxygen. At 100 feet, at the same time frame, you will use way more oxygen. And in this case, at a depth of 100 feet, David and Jeff had about 15 minutes of oxygen. And that's how long they were down there, and their oxygen started to run low. That's why they came back up, if Jeff Wandich's story is to be believed. You know, I got to say there's something confusing about that. Did they really travel two hours, 50 miles out into the Gulf 
to only dive on the Baja California for 15 minutes? Say Kent hadn't had an an equalization problem in his inner ear, which is something I'm familiar with. I had that same problem when I took a scuba class in the early 2000s. So I'm very familiar with it. If all four of them, no problems, all four of them went down to the bottom of the gulf, swam around the Baja California for 15 minutes, all of them would have been out of oxygen and they would have had to have come back to the surface. So they traveled all that way for 15 minutes of diving. Now, I checked through the book. I'm not exactly sure how many tanks they brought with them. I don't know how much money they had. I don't know all of the equipment. The way I read it is that each one of them only had one tank, meaning a total of four tanks. And once they were done with that tank, you're not getting any more oxygen in that tank until you get back to shore. So I have a question. Does it make sense that they traveled two hours out into the Gulf to only dive on a wreck for 15 minutes? Because that's all the oxygen time they had. Point number six in this section regarding boating and scuba requirements and practices. We need to talk about the current of the Gulf of Mexico, specifically the speed of the current. If you remember, Jeff stated that when he and David came back to the surface and discovered that the boat had just about sunk, that Kent and Omar were approximately 60 yards away. That's 180 feet. And keep in mind also that if Jeff's story is to be believed, he and David were on the bottom of the Gulf swimming around the Baja California, for at least, let's say, 10 minutes. Well, I actually did some studying, finding out how fast the current of the Gulf of Mexico in that area of the Gulf of Mexico is in November. And there are many studies that have been done on this. Many. And on average, in that area of the Gulf in November... That's going to be a current that is headed south, almost due south, technically going toward the Keys. And it's going to be moving at about 25 centimeters per second. I know that's just what you wanted to hear in the metric system. Well, what does that mean? It means that if Jeff's story is true, that... Those two, Jeff and David, went in first. Kent and Omar went in after them. Kent had a problem. They go back to the surface. As soon as they get on the boat, the boat starts to sink. They have to jump in the water. They grab a couple things, but automatically, they start drifting away from the boat. And they drift for, let's say, 10 minutes. All the while, Jeff and David on the bottom at the Baja California, not knowing what's going on above them. Definitely, there is no doubt that Omar and Kent would drift farther than 60 yards in 10 minutes. And in fact, conservatively, conservatively, in 10 minutes, they would have drifted something like 200 yards. But Jeff insists that they were down on the bottom for 10 to 15 minutes while the other guys were on the surface. They came back, and those two guys had only drifted 
60 yards. Something in there does not square. On top of the fact, let's say it was even 60 yards. Let's just take Jeff's word on that. He never does explain how Kent and Omar actually get back to the boat. So let me get this right. They drift away, and then suddenly they start swimming back when when Jeff and David come back to the surface. Why didn't they just hang on to the boat or try to swim back to the boat once they knew the boat was like bobbing there? Why didn't they swim back even before Jeff and David came back to the surface? Jeff doesn't explain that. Point number seven, and this is kind of a quick one. What was discovered once the siesta was brought back to the surface and taken to shore is that the battery was shut off on the siesta. Nobody knows how that happened. It very well could be that the salvagers taking the the boat off the bottom might have flipped the switch. Whether on purpose, by accident, we don't know. But it is a curious fact. It's never been explained. And certainly, you could see how a boat might sink if the battery was shut off for some reason and water started to come into the boat and the pumps couldn't work to pump the water back out because why? There's no electricity. A curious fact, given that the boat sank. Would it have sunk had the battery been turned on? No. Number eight, and this is where I want to talk about this writer who came down to the Gulf and conducted a little bit of experimentation on what he thought might have happened out there on the water. I made a note of that after the interview with Bill, and I told you I was going to bring it up. I read the article that this guy wrote. And I have to tell you, on the surface, it seems very plausible. The thinking goes like this. The Siesta was about a 25-foot-long boat, and it had two huge engines on the back. Very fast boat. On calm waters, this thing would really, really move. But with two motors on the back, obviously the stern is going to be quite heavy. It might have been a boat that should have only had one engine back there. And this writer has the theory that Omar and Kent got back to the boat. They climbed onto the boat on the stern, might have been standing there, and the waves had a maybe a rogue wave, something like that, washed over the boat. And if the battery did happen to be shut off, for whatever reason, and that would have been enough to take the boat underwater in a very quick manner. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. I have to admit that if the boat was overloaded on the back, and then maybe you add on the fishing equipment and anything else they brought out there, then maybe the boat was a little bit overloaded. But see, I have a problem with this. I think of it this way. If the boat was anchored, and so once it's anchored, the boat is free to drift, and what's eventually going to happen is that the bow of the boat, the front of the boat, is going to be pointing into the current because that's where the anchor was attached. And the back of the boat would be facing downstream, I guess you could say, away from the direction that the water was coming. In addition, that anchor pulling down 
on the front of the boat, it would almost be like a seesaw. If the guys got onto the back of the boat, the boat is not likely to go down on the back because you would have all of this weight pulling on the front from the anchor at the front. You have to realize, think of it this way as like a seesaw. If you have one person sitting on one side of a seesaw, if somebody gets on the other side, yes, the seesaw may go down a little bit, but it all depends on how much the person weighs. Well, those two guys, maybe between them, they weigh, let's say, probably under 400 pounds. That's not a lot compared to the amount of force that that rope is exerting and the anchor is exerting on the front of the boat to keep it in place so it doesn't drift away. And that matters. And that guy who did this article never brings that up. Now, I will say, and this is why Bill and I had a conversation regarding this, I asked him, are you sure that the boat was anchored on the bow of the boat and not on the stern? If the if the anchor was on the stern of the boat, which would be unusual but not unheard of, that then the back of the boat would have been facing into the current. And in that case, if those two guys get on, push the boat down, then you would already have the current facing the back of the boat and you would much more likely get a swamping situation because there would be nothing pushing down on the front of the boat to or pulling down to even everything out. But Bill is pretty sure that the anchor was on the bow. So this guy who did this study on this, I think he missed something in all of this. And he might, I don't know, he did this years and years ago, but he might want to rethink his conclusions. And, and what this does really is it even more makes it hard to understand why the boat sank in the first place. The next part, the final part, number three, are Jeff's own words to the media in the days, actually hours and days, after he was rescued. I want to read a comment to you that he made very shortly after he was rescued. They, meaning the other three guys, they wanted me to stay with them, you know, together, and, and just stay there and hold each other and just float. Something told me that wasn't a good idea. I knew, I didn't know, but I knew I wanted to try and swim to this tower because I knew I would be safe there. Is there anything about that statement that seems odd to you? I can tell you there are two parts of it that seem very odd to me. And you may need to rewind, I'm showing my age here, rewind the podcast, go back, listen to it a couple times in case you didn't catch every word. But there's something about that statement that seems very odd to me, and I'm going to go through those two sections that caught my ear. First of all, the first sentence that he says, they, and he means the three other guys. He means David, Kent, and Omar. They wanted me to stay with them. That statement, doesn't it kind of contradict his story that they were swimming towards the tower, then Jeff saw these lights and turned in the other direction for a few seconds, and then he says he lost contact with the three others. That statement makes it sound like... It sounds like he started swimming toward the tower by himself, leaving the other three at the boat. 
what else could the word stay in that sentence mean? Stay infers they were stationary, not swimming. Remember what he said. He said all four of them left at the same time to swim to the tower. Then he saw lights. He turned away. And then he decided to turn back. He he must have swam a couple feet in an opposite direction. Then when he turned around, he says the three of them were gone. Well, that's not what he's saying in this statement. He's saying they wanted me to stay with them. It sounds to me like they were having an argument. In fact, I read this, and it sounds to me like he left them at the boat. I'm going to read this statement again, the entire one. They wanted me to stay with them, you know, together, and, and just stay there and hold each other and just float. Something told me that wasn't a good idea. I knew, I didn't know, but I knew I wanted to try to swim to this tower because I knew I would be safe there. To me, the first sentence in that statement totally contradicts everything that is he explained as to what happened that evening when the four of them were, he got separated from them. And the way I read this sentence, that first sentence, it sounds to me like he left them. And not meaning they were all swimming together and he decided to go off in a different, different direction. It sounds like the three of them were stationary somewhere or the four of them, and then he decided to leave them. Also, if you notice toward the end of the statement, I'll read it again. They wanted me to stay with them, you know, together, and and just stay there and hold each other and just float. Something told me that wasn't a good idea. I knew, dot, 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 I didn't know, but I knew I wanted to try to swim to this tower because I knew I would be safe there. I want to concentrate on that last part where he says, I wanted to try to swim to this tower because I knew I would be safe there. Notice the concentration on the self. This is Jeff talking. Notice the concentration on his well-being. I knew I would be safe there. He did not say, I knew we would be safe there. He was the one who came up with the idea to swim to the tower because he is the, was the one who had been out to the Baja California before and knew that that tire, the tower was like four miles away. I, I knew I wanted to try to swim to this tower because I knew I would be safe there. He doesn't say I knew we would be safe there. He says I knew I would be safe there. This infers that Jeff left the other three at the boat and started to the, swimming toward the tower by himself, contradicting his story that all four were headed to the tower when three of them disappeared. Now, my understanding is that this comment uh, that he made that starts with, they wanted me to stop with them, that is on record somewhere. Somebody recorded that or videotaped it. I've not heard either one or seen either one. But he did a, uh, an interview shortly after he was rescued, and these were the words that he said. Do these words sound like somebody who was swimming with three other people and got separated from them? It doesn't. It sounds to me like a person who willingly left those other three and swam to the tower by himself. These are his his words. This is not hearsay. This is not rumor. These are his actual words. 
In addition, I'm going to pick out something else, and it's right in the middle here. I'm going to read the statement one more time for you. They wanted me to stay with them, you know, together and dot, 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 and just stay there and hold each other and just float. Something told me that wasn't a good idea. I knew dot, dot, dot. I didn't know, but I knew I wanted to try to swim to this tower because I knew I would be safe there. What's also interesting to me, and I, I'm not sure what this means, but he says in, this, in, this, in that middle section, I knew dot, dot, dot. I didn't know, but I knew. He throws in the I didn't know between two I knews. That's not common English language usage. I really wonder what he wanted to say about not knowing, then thought better of it. I'll read it again. I knew, I d- dot, 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 I didn't know, but I knew. I would like to know what he didn't know. I mean, you leave that out of it. It's just, I knew I wanted to try to swim to this tower because I knew I would be safe there. But instead, he puts, I didn't know, right in the middle of it. Did he not know if he'd be able to make it there? Did he not know whether the other three would be able to make it there? Did he, what didn't he know? Did he not know which way the current was going? What didn't he know? If I could ask him that, if I could have a conversation with him, and if he could remember this comment that he's made, this statement that he made all these years ago, um, I'd like to hear what he'd have to say about that. There's something else that's peculiar about Jeff's words. I noticed it while reading the book Vanished in the Gulf. Maybe if you get the book you'll be able to notice it too, or maybe you can find a a very lengthy account of what Jeff Wandich said. In this entire story, it seems like he is always the hero. Just give you some examples. Remember what he said when the boat started finally going under the water, that David was attached to the rope that was attached to the anchor, and Jeff cut the rope with a knife that he just happened to have. David didn't cut himself off of that rope. Omar didn't do it. Kent didn't do it. It was Jeff. Jeff just happened to have a knife that could save David's life. I want to know something. Was that knife ever found? Did he have it on him when he was rescued from that tower? I'd like to know. Also, remember... The flares were eventually found on the boat. Remember, the the siesta was brought back up from the depths of the Gulf of Mexico, taken to shore, and when all of the compartments were opened up, the flares were in the exact position in the boat that Jeff and everybody else thought they should be. But somehow, it's David who made the mistake. Remember, Jeff told David to go underwater and get the flares. David could not accomplish that task. So in essence, by Jeff saying and telling his story that he told David to go down and get those flares, he's saying, hey, I told him to go get the flares. I can't help it that he didn't get them. He makes David look like the incompetent one. It's somebody else making a mistake. Jeff doesn't seem to make any mistakes, at least in the way he tells a story specifically after the boat had sunk. Also, Jeff swam against the current in the Gulf. This is the, what the this was a term that the Coast Guard used. 
And this is the way it was portrayed in the media at the time in 1994 when Jeff was finally found. So once again, Jeff is kind of a hero. Somehow he figures out how to swim four miles in the water, in the gulf, with four-foot waves and a current that's pretty tough. And I'm not even sure if he had... It'd be impossible if he had to swim against the current. Impossible. And even with the current, it'd be very difficult to put yourself in a position... Uh, where you would just happen to swim and the current would take you directly to that tower. And I still have questions about that swim. And in fact, the Coast Guard itself, the Coast Guard most experienced search and rescue organization in the world. It has a lot of area to cover. The United States has a lot of borders that are on water, Pacific and Atlantic Ocean. The reason the Coast Guard did not even look at that tower four miles away until 36 hours later, almost 48 hours later, is because they considered only the remotest of possibilities, to use the quote, it was only a remote possibility, quote unquote, that somebody could have swum to that tower. But somehow Jeff Wandich did it. Keep in mind, the Coast Guard did not even look at that tower because they did not consider that to be a possibility, a, a, a very remote possibility. But somehow, Jeff being the hero, he managed how to figure out to swim to that tower. Some further illustrations on how Jeff looks like the hero and the others look like the incompetent ones. It's Omar and Kent who sank the boat. They were the ones, allegedly, who were on the boat when it started to sink. Not Jeff. He was 100 feet down looking at the Baja, California. So he puts the blame for the sinking of the boat on Omar and Kent. In addition, in his story, it's David who stupidly tied himself to the anchor line and almost got drugged down to the bottom when the boat started to sink. It's Kent who couldn't equalize to get down to the wreck. It was David who couldn't find the flares. It was Omar and Kent who couldn't call for help before the boat submerged. It's the others who went missing. Do you see a pattern here? And finally, I want to add a comment that he made to the author of Vanished in the Gulf, Joe Warrington. Right after he was rescued and he was back at the hotel and Joe Warrington was there, and I guess Joe Warrington was going to be asking him some questions about what happened, he caught Jeff complaining about how he himself was being portrayed in the media, watching the news. Here his friends were still missing. I guess it was still possible that they could be found. This was just a few days after uh, Jeff had been rescued. It's still possible that they were still out there somewhere and could be found. He was complaining about how he was being portrayed. Meanwhile, there were three families on shore uh, agonizing in deep emotional pain that their sons hadn't been found. And Jeff was worrying about his reputation in the media. And that concludes my prosecution of Jeff Wantich's story as to what happened in the Gulf of Mexico on November 4th, 1994. 
want you to know that you're going to find some other stories out there. You're going to find a lot of rumors out there, including the idea that maybe those four guys were out there for some sort of drug deal, and the drug deal went wrong. I'm not going to get into that simply for the fact that I want to stick to the facts of this case. Everything that you've heard me talk about after the interview are facts, either from history or there, or from websites about boating and scuba diving, about the Gulf of Mexico and its current, for example, or Jeff Wandich's actual words that he used after he was rescued. I'm not going to get into wild conspiracy theories about drug dealers or something like that, or the guys got picked up uh, by some passing drug trafficker in a boat that was full of cocaine, and because of that, those three guys were killed, and Jeff was allowed to survive. I'm not getting into that. Getting into those theories helps no one. It doesn't help the Coast Guard. It doesn't help the families. And frankly, it doesn't help Jeff Wandich either. Let's just stick to the facts that we can prove, that we can show either through words or history or just our general study of boating and scuba diving to come to our own conclusions. And I hope you do that in this case. So, you the listeners, you're the jury. What do you think happened? You listened to part one. You listened to this part two. In a few days, I'm going to be conducting a Twitter poll to see what you think. And of course, we'll be talking about this at the Unfound Podcast discussion group as well. I'll be interested to see what all of you listeners have to say. And I thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode... I urge you to go to iTunes and give Unfound a great review. I deeply appreciate it. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound. Unfound.